Well, as I said, unusual days, right? Uh, who would have thought the things that we've been going through the last four months? Who would have thought about this six months ago that we would go through? I know I, know I didn't. Uh, never in my wildest dreams would have thought that the Washington Redskins would become the Washington football team. I mean, seriously. And there's only about four of us in this congregation who care about that. <laughs> I heard an amen. But you should. <laughs> seriously, I mean, what has happened these last four months? And uh, it's been my practice over the years that I have been preaching to plan my messages two to five months in advance. I seek the Lord's face. Uh, I, I don't just kind of haphazardly think, oh, I'll do this next. I try to seek, God, what do you want me to share with the congregation? And because of that, I don't quickly throw out my schedule and uh, uh, especially do things that are in the headlines. I, uh, I have some pastor friends over the years who've done that, and I've watched as they've kind of been at the mercy of whatever the journalists decide to write about next. But there are some times that you need to do that. So after the 9-11 attacks, I, every pastor I know, we all scrapped our message for that week and, and uh, talked about what had happened. And the same thing is true uh, today. If we get together, I can almost guarantee within 10 minutes we'll be talking about uh, COVID-19 or uh, race relations. And so next Sunday, we're going to talk about uh, the white Christian, since our congregation probably 98% white, white Christian and race relations. So that'll be next Sunday's topic. And today we're going to talk about the Christian citizen and COVID-19. By the way, if you've got a, if you picked up a copy of the sermon notes when you came in, take a look on the back side. And the first, uh, these are questions to think about. The first question says, do you believe that COVID-29 is very dangerous? That is not prophetic. <laughs> Just a typo. And kudos to Dalton Lapp for catching that uh, early this morning. So, no, I have no prophetic information. And I certainly hope I don't. That would mean there'd be a COVID-20, 20, 21, 22, and so forth. We don't want that. So this, this conversation about COVID-19 uh, could be kind of intense. In fact, when I shared with the staff these two messages that I was going to preach, their eyes kind of got big and, and they looked at me like I'd lost my mind. And I said, not to worry. Uh, I'm retiring the end of next year. We can just remove, move retirement up early if we need to. So I know I'm probably going to get emails and texts and phone calls about this Sunday's message and next Sunday's message, and that's okay. I have broad shoulders, and I, I can handle that, I think. But I thought it would be good to start this conversation off with something light, since it is uh, kind of heavy, or at least we have strong opinions on it. And uh, in conversations with my daughter and daughter-in-law and some other women in the church who have children, I know it's been a challenge <clears throat> to kind of be... Uh, unwillingly thrust into the homeschool mom uh, routine and not just a kind of a conventional homeschool but kind of this homeschool mom and a kind of a, a referee between the school and your kids so I know some of you have seen this but take a look this is fun let us pray father God I am a child of God what I am not is a homeschool teacher God, I'm at home, but Lord, ain't no teaching going on around here. Father God, I am your humble servant. What I am not is a math teacher, God. Lord God, the spirit of common core has attacked our household. And right now, the only thing we have in common is frustration and no answer to the math problem, Lord God. I ask that you send down your angels of the carryover, Lord. Teach her that if you carry the one over to the tenth place, you can get the answer, Lord God. Lord God, I am a layman in your vineyard. What I am not is the cafeteria lady, Lord. Yet again, the devil has attacked and sent down a tapeworm onto my child, Lord God. And I need you to help her to understand, Lord, that just because there's a refrigerator 
don't mean the door got to be open. And just because there's a stove don't mean the eye has to be on. I am not Dennis, Ahab, Shonis, nor Waffle House, Lord God. Lord God, right now, I need her to understand that his times are tough right now, Lord God. But I see if things continue the way that they are going, Lord God. Not only am I your child, but I'm going to be an inmate. Because I'm going to jail, Lord God. I, I don't look good in orange. I don't look good in a jumpsuit, Lord God. But, Lord, I ask that you, that you change the way things are going right now, Father God. And bless every teacher. Because they got a special place in heaven. Ain't no way that I could do it, Lord God. Ain't no way. Amen. 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 <laughs> and some of you feel that more intensely than others, I guess. I guess it's been a, a rough three months for you and, and not knowing what's going on in the coming months makes it even more difficult, I'm, I'm sure. January 31st, uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar declared COVID-19 to be a public health emergency in the United States. That's kind of where everything kicked off officially. And then on March 6th, our Governor Wolf declared covid a disaster emergency in the Commonwealth. And we could talk about what's taken place since then. Schools shuttered, businesses closed down, people unemployed. Uh, we had in April over 20 million jobs just evaporate in the United States. In April, we had the highest unemployment rate that we have had since the Great Depression, so 85 years or so, 14.7% uh, of the workers were unemployed. And uh, it, it's no wonder that people are scared and angry and bitter and weary and polarized, impatient, and even defiant. And so this morning I wanted to talk about this uh, from a pastoral perspective as well as uh, from w w how do we look at this uh, through the lens of a um, Christian citizen. And I, but I want to start out with, with just some pastoral things. And so uh, this is going to start and we're going to end with some pastoral things as well. Starting with a pastor's encouragement. And I have four points under here. One, this is no time to lose our courage. This is no time to lose our courage. In some cases, if we listen to the media, uh, we're gonna, it's like we're all going to die. We're all going to die. And there's truth to that, right? We are all going to die. And sometimes we've wondered whether or not the culture knows that. We are all going to die, but it's not going to be today or tomorrow. And there's more to living than just not dying. I told that to the personal care director at the nursing home where my mother's at one time. I said, there's more to living. There's, there's education. There's livelihoods. There's weddings and funerals and worship and hockey games and date nights and visiting elderly family members and vacations and handshakes and hugs. There's street fairs and neighborhood barbecues. And in fact, when all of those things go away and we're preoccupied with just not dying, dying becomes the only thing of interest. Do you know that there are people in our retirement homes around the county who are on suicide watch. You say, why? Because there's nothing else in life right now happening for them except a preoccupation with not dying. This is no time to lose our courage. And by the way, we, last I checked, we have a different hope when it comes to dying. When we lose someone near to us, the Bible says we, we grieve differently than the world does. We grieve differently than those who have no hope. Why? Because this life is not the end of life. There's another life that we're going to. And it puts this one, even in its grandest days, to shame. This is not the end. This is no time to lose our courage. Secondly, this is no time for us to replace our Bibles. This is no time for us to replace our Bibles. 
Last week, the American Bible Society published their 10th annual State of the Bible. They do this every year. They take polls and surveys around the United States and they draw conclusions about what the American Christian attitude or participation with the Bible is. And they discovered in Jan from January to June of this year, so that's mainly COVID months, that 13 million Americans who normally have a significant engagement with the Bible, meaning Christians who have a regular time with the Lord that involves the, the scriptures, whether it's a, once a day or every other day, it's a regular and meaningful engagement that 13 million Americans no longer do. And there's a reason that I use the word replace our Bibles rather than neglect our Bibles. Because I suspect, and some have speculated on this, that what's happening is the Bible's getting left, uh, put to one side, and instead we're picking up the smartphone, and you, do you know this new word, doom scrolling? Doom scrolling. We're scrolling through our news feed, through our social media, through the, uh, uh, whoever we follow for, for news reports, and we're looking at the latest doom that's being declared. This is no time to replace our Bibles. We need to hear God's voice now more than ever. Third, this is no time to, quote, think of ourselves more highly than we should. Does that sound familiar from Scripture? Romans 12, 3. This is no time to think of ourselves more highly than we should. If I were to have a conversation with you after the service today, no doubt we would start talking about COVID-19 at some point and probably pretty quickly. And I would find out very quickly whether or not you think like I do. And you would find out very quickly whether or not I think like you do. And then we would do one of two things. If, if we think differently, we would either back off so that we don't have this intense conflict or we would go for the jugular, right? Isn't that what you've experienced with people? We have these strong opinions and the sides have been formed in very hardened ways, often along political lines. I mean, you have to be blind not to see that if you tend toward liberal I, or and or democratic politics, you tend to come land down on the, along the line that says this is a real deal uh, it's very scary. There's a lot of people going to die and we should do everything like whether it's masks or staying away from people or not going out of our house. A and then you have the other line over here. If you tend toward conservative politics or Republican politics, you're like, it's all a scam. It's all, it's, it's all hokum. It's not that big of a deal. And besides, they're taking away our liberties on and on and on. Right? Am I right? And the problem in the church is not just that we might have different politics, but we have an attitude toward each other when they land differently than we do that simply is not godly. You remember the sermon series we had a year and a half ago about learning to uh, disagree agreeably? Well, this is a grand opportunity for us to practice that and develop it. And not, we could be wrong. This is a great time to remember that we could be wrong, or at least partly wrong. What I'm, I think I'm most troubled by the conversations that are taking place in this uh, era is, the, is this um, absolute confidence and certainty that we're right and everybody else is wrong, no matter what side we're landing on. No time to think of ourselves more highly than we should. And lastly, this is no time to let up on praying. This is no time to let up on praying. I came across a prayer this week written by Scotty Smith nine, nine years ago. You're going to think I'm uh, Andrew McLean reading a Scotty Smith prayer. Andrew does this a lot. But it was, it's almost as if he wrote it last month. It's so good for us. So I'm going to uh, read it. Would you pray along with me? And it starts out with a verse, uh, two verses from Revelation 1. 
He placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Lord Jesus, it's stunning, liberating, and timely to know that the most repeated command throughout the whole Bible is, do not be afraid. The angels spoke these words to startled shepherds at your birth, and you repeated the command to a devastated Mary on the morning of your resurrection. And now, through the gospel, you speak the same soul-centering, life-giving words to our hearts, do not be afraid. It's not about bucking up, but believing you. Because you are the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, we don't have to be afraid of anything in between those brackets. You are God, and we are so very not. You will never say oops about anything you decree in world history or anything you bring into our daily lives. Lord Jesus, you never, quote, try, unquote, to do anything as though there could ever be trial and error with you. You never have to scratch your head in confusion or resort to some plan B or C. You are perfectly executing your sovereign will all the time, from naming the stars to numbering our hairs. And because you are the living one, who was dead and who is now alive forever, we don't have to be afraid of Judgment Day or this day. For your cross was our Judgment Day and your resurrection is our insurance of complete acceptance by God. We no longer live under the weight of our guilt, for we now live in the delight of our Father. He persistently shouts to our hearts, there is now and forevermore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. To which we shout back, hallelujah, many times over. Jesus, because you hold the keys of death and Hades and to everything else, we don't have to be afraid to die or live. You have robbed the grave of its victory. You have removed the sting of death. And you have defeated the devil and all the powers of darkness. We don't have to be afraid of difficult people or devastating circumstances. We don't have to be afraid of failing health or heart-wrenching providences. We don't have to fear more terrorists in the world or failures on our part. Yes. Yes, yes. We know you will never leave us or forsake us. And we know we are secure in the palm of your hand. Free us more fully from our fears that we might live more fully to the praise of your glorious grace. So very amen, we pray in your loving and powerful name. Amen. That'll preach. That's a prayer that'll preach. And I hope it was an encouragement to you like me. Now we get to the heart of our message. How do Christian citizens follow Jesus during COVID? I don't know if you saw just in the last couple of days, John MacArthur's church in California has gone public with their decision to defy the governor. Governor Newsom instructed the week before last, I believe, that as of now, churches are no longer allowed to gather publicly. And he said it's for an indefinite period of time. There's been an uptick in COVID cases in California, and this is part of his plan to mitigate that. And so just a few days ago, um, John MacArthur issued a statement, which was then um, augmented by an additional statement by the elders, saying, we are going to continue to meet, and this is why. Didn't appeal primarily to the First Amendment, but rather to the divine right 
of Christ to rule his church rather than the state. There are all kinds of things like this that churches are wrestling with across the country, even as we have been wrestling with. And so we want to talk about this this morning, what does the Bible have to say to us who follow Jesus when it comes to the state dictating this and dictating that? What's our responsibility as a church? What's the responsibility of us as individual Christians who happen to be citizens? And so we're going to start with this statement, God is king and there is no other. God is king and there is no other. That means that we are citizens first and foremost of his kingdom and our allegiance goes first to him. Let me take you to first. Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, depending on translation, it might say pilgrims or strangers and aliens, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, and then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior. Let me just stop there and point out that he is talking about not your obedience to Christ because that wouldn't impress your neighbors, but rather that your common obedience as a citizen is going to impress your neighbors. Your honorable behavior is something that they would look for and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. The point here is that you and I are not first and foremost American citizens. Last week, a woman named Alma passed away in Lidditz. And it said in her obituary that she went home to be with her Lord and Savior. Always love to see that. She went home. You say, wait a minute, you lived in Lidditz. She was 88. Before that, I assume she passed away in a nursing home, one of the nursing home in Lidditz. But it said she'd spent most of her life in Hershey. Married 67 years. So you would think her home, even if it wasn't the retirement home, would it be Hershey, Pennsylvania? She lived there so long. No, no, she's going to live someplace else far longer. She went home to be with the Lord Jesus. Why? Because she she was a stranger and an alien. She's a temporary resident here and a foreigner when contrasted with her home in glory, in contrasted with her ultimate king. God is king. So if you were in the United States Army and you're a lieutenant and you're summoned to a colonel's office, you go into his office, the first thing you do is snap a sharp salute. Why? Because he's your superior officer. In the same way, you and I snap a salute to our king, the highest rank in the United States Army is a five-star general. God's a six-star general. And there's no one who supersedes his authority in the life of someone who follows Jesus. No one. But take note of this. Daniel chapter 4, verse 25. God has appointed some deputies. And this is repeated several times in Daniel 4. If you know the story, Daniel has been brought in to interpret a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar, pagan king of Babylon, has had. And Daniel says to him in the middle of verse 25, the most high, that's God, the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world. Can you read the rest with me out loud? And gives them to anyone he chooses. God's the six-star general but he picks the one-star and the two-star generals. He picks the colonels. He picks the captains. He picks the lieutenants and majors. That means whether you like him or not, Governor Wolf was picked by God. Now, he was chosen through voting, but don't we believe that God is sovereign over everything? That means that President Trump, whether you like him or not, was chosen and placed in the Oval Office by God, as was Barack Obama before him and George Bush 
and Bill Clinton. God has his deputies. He picks the people who are in positions of power, and that's true whether it's the United States or Japan or Pakistan or Eritrea, China, or even Saudi Arabia. The king on his throne in Saudi Arabia was put there by God, even though he doesn't believe that, at least not the way we do. So what does that mean for us as citizens of the states in which leaders have been chosen by God? Romans chapter 13. Paul writes this about A.D. 57, beginning of verse 1. Everyone, and he's speaking to and about believers, everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So, Anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what's right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants. And and, and and just stop there, and again, put your least favorite politician name in that line. He, she, is God's servant. President Trump, God's servant. Governor Wolf, John's God's servant. Nancy Pelosi. Do I hear a God's servant behind that? The authorities are God's servant sent for your good. You say, well, they make a lot of mistakes. They do a lot of evil things. That's true. But in the big picture, God has placed them. Imagine if you had no authority. You should study the legacy of the country of Lebanon, which had a long and illustrious history of anarchy and is recently descending into that chaos again. In fact, just last week, the United States government issued a travel warning. Don't go to Lebanon. I got information from Barnabas Aid, which is a persecuted church ministry that's now located here in Lancaster, pleading for money to help Christians in Lebanon. Because when you and I, you know, if you lost your job during COVID, you got unemployment. You got a $600 augmentation of unemployment. You got a, a check from the government. That's not happening in Lebanon. They lost their jobs. They lost their income immediately, and it's getting ugly. When you live in a country where there is no authority, good or bad, anybody that's lived in a climate like that would say, I take bad authority rather than no authority. The authorities are God's servants, verse 4, sent for your good, but if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Who is our clear conscience for? It's for us, and it's for God. We, have a, we try to keep our conscience clear, for ourselves and for God. And he says, therefore, pay your taxes for the same reasons for government workers need to be paid. They're serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. And we say, yeah, but Paul, you don't know the people that we work, that we are citizens under. You don't know what it's like to have a guy like Governor Wolf taking away our freedoms, taking away our jobs, closing our schools, making us stay indoors. It's insane. And now making us wear masks. Let me tell you a little bit about government. 
when Paul was writing these words. So three years before this, Emperor Nero comes to power. And the reason he came to power was Nero's mother killed her husband, who was Nero's father-in-law and Nero's adopted father. So Nero's mom kills her husband so that Nero can ascend to the throne. Now here's the kind of guy that she made emperor. He would go out at night with his buddies in disguise, roam the streets of the city of Rome. He would steal from merchants. Here's a guy who, who's an emperor. He has all the wealth he needs. But for sport, he would, he would attack citizens in the streets. For sport, he would steal from merchants in the street. They would visit taverns and they would visit brothels. And then he would take his disguise off and go back to his throne. He had an affair with a married woman and several gay relationships. And then after these words were written by Paul, he went on to murder his own mother, murder his wife, and I will stop there and spare you the even more grievous things that happened. This is the government about which Paul was writing. Now, you might say, well, maybe Paul just lost it. Maybe he's getting old and Alzheimer's setting in. He didn't know what he was talking about. All right, let's go back again to 1 Peter chapter 2 and pick up at verse 13. So the apostle Paul has said this in Romans 13. The apostle Peter saying this, for the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king is head of state or the officials he has appointed. Would you read those first four words for me? For the Lord's sake. Say it together. For the Lord's sake. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free and yet you are God's slaves, so don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, respect the king. <clears throat> okay, so it's hard to miss. God has said through his apostles that we are to obey the government. Any limits to that? Is there any time when God says, no, 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 you, you, you now stop obeying them? Absolutely. Acts chapter 4. So in the early days of the church, the apostles are preaching publicly that Jesus has been crucified and then raised from the dead. And the Sanhedrin pulls them in. These are, uh, these are Jewish authorities, but they are given some license under the Roman authorities to conduct affairs among the Jewish community. And they order the apostles to stop preaching about Jesus. And this is, what the, this is how the um, apostles respond in verse 19. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? In other words, you're telling us to stop preaching about Jesus, and yet God has told us to preach about Jesus. Who do we listen to? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. Chapter 5, this conversation happens again. <clears throat> Verse 28, we gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name. He said, instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him and you want to make us responsible for his death. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority, period. In other words, when what Rome tells us or what Washington tells us or what Harrisburg tells us to do conflicts with what God tells us to do, then we have to pick always our king. So that brings us to a discussion about Keystone's response to the governor's disaster emergency decree. <clears throat> Back in March, when the governor said that we want everybody to stay at home, it specifically, the order specifically said that churches were exempt. The churches were considered as uh, essential and life-giving 
And so we were allowed to continue to meet. But as a leadership team, we, <clears throat> excuse me, decided that we were going to not meet. We didn't know how long we were talking about. We thought the possibility might be this could go a, several weeks, a month. And out of deference, even though we were permitted by law to keep meeting, out of deference to what the government was trying to do to flatten the curve with the virus, we wanted to be able to, we wanted to participate in that and cooperate with that. March goes by, April goes by, May goes by, and we don't see anything really happening. And so we start in May to have the conversations about are we going to just continue this or are we going to open up for public services? And so eventually the elders decided that we're going to reopen for public services on July 12th. We're going to take some uh, basic steps of care to mitigate the virus. Uh, we're not going to pass the offering bag. We're not to pass out bulletins. We're going to put the rows further apart for social distancing. We're going to encourage families not to sit up against each other. And we're going to encourage people to wear masks. It was kind of that way. Oh, by the way, no kids ministry. On July 1st, and we put that information out to the congregation. July 1st, Governor Wolf's office, Department of Health says, uh, we want masks to be worn every time you leave your home. Even if you're outside, if you can't be six feet away from people, we want you to wear a mask. Uh, get together any public places indoors, we want you wearing masks. And all of a sudden, we're now having to wrestle with, are we to give an order to our congregation when we meet together that everybody is to wear masks? And so after our, this happened July, uh, July 1st, the order came down from the government. July 2nd, we have an elders meeting, and we decide that we're going to uh, ask everyone to wear a mask at Keystone. We're not going to police it. We're not going to enforce it. But we're going to ask people to wear, everybody to wear masks. Put that information out. <laughs> Let's just say blowback was swift and vocal. We got lots of texts. We got lots of emails. We got lots of uh, phone calls. Uh, some on one side, but many on the other saying, we don't think we should have to wear masks. And we felt it was a significant enough response. <clears throat> some people said, we're not going to come back until we don't have to wear masks. Uh, we're going to go elsewhere or we're going to keep watching uh, online live stream. And we felt <clears throat> that in itself created a problem that we needed to wrestle with. Meaning, is this going to interfere uh, so much that we can't meet as a fellowship and end up being uh, violating scripture there. So we met, the elders met on July 7th, uh, pretty sure longest elders meeting in my memory. Uh, we left here at 11.15 that night and uh, it was, it, one of the main reasons that it took so long is we don't all agree. If you think the 10 elders that um, are you've chosen in this church are all kind of marching in lockstep and we just kind of, you know, we're just an echo chamber. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, we have strongly held opinions that don't always uh, agree, come down in the same line. And so we left that meeting uh, saying we're going to ask the congregation to wear masks when they come. We're not going to police it. We're not going to enforce it. Uh, we feel like the onus is on you, that really the, the call is for us to individually decide about wearing masks. That's between you and the Lord, the government. Uh, government. But that we were, are going to ask elders to wear them, people who are doing ministry while they're on duty in that ministry, and our staff to kind of say we're going to, the best of our ability as a church, reflect what the governor has asked for us. Because here was our conclusion. To wear a mask is not a sin. It doesn't conflict with anything that God would ask us to do. And so we're going to try to accommodate as far as we can. And so that's where we have landed. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things that I've been encouraged about, somebody asked me after the first Sunday, they said, how many people in the congregation had masks on? What, what percentage? I said, I, I have no idea. Because I have, over the years, I've kind of trained myself to not 
look at people and make um, kind of judgments about them. Um, so if you're looking mad at something I'm saying, I don't want to remember that. Uh, if you're looking joyful about something I'm saying, I don't want to remember who's a, a fan and who's, a not, who's not. And so I don't really calculate that, who's wearing a mask and who's not. So uh, one of the things that we want to foster at Keystone is for people not to look at one another and judge them. Uh, that, that's not what this, this ought to be all about. I'll touch a little bit more on this in just a minute. And so uh, we're going to continue as staff members to wear masks, uh, ask staff to wear masks, elders to wear masks, and so forth. But at the end of the day, even there, it's going to be a, we're not, we don't tend to police that. It's going to be an individual's call. Now, one of the things that has, that has become apparent in the weeks since we made our final decision about what we're doing today is that there are, there are people, especially parents, who are wrestling with, I, I, don't, I, I can't get my two-year-old to wear a mask, which is the age limit that Governor Wolf's office says we want you to wear a mask, two and up. And I get that. I, I, I don't know what I would do if I had a two, three, four-year-old at this stage of the game. I don't know how you keep that on them. And there are some people who are saying, when we come back to kids' ministry, I, I, I think you should decide either all kids are going to wear them or no kids are going to wear them. And so we've been having discussions at the staff level, and we were, going, we're going to have discussions at the elder level about those kinds of things in the day ahead, days ahead, because here's what our concern is. We are commanded, and this is what Grace Church is, is uh, this is where they're landing in, California. We are commanded by Scripture to meet. The church is commanded by Scripture to meet. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 5. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do. In other words, there were some Christians in the early church who finally decided, yeah, you know, I, I don't know how they're going to do church, whatever their plan was, but they decided we don't need to meet together. Not necessary. And the writer to Hebrews is saying, it, it, actually, it is necessary. Now, you need to be the church to get together and encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And so that's a command by God. So if we see that things that we're either requiring or not requiring are making that less and less likely, that has to be part of the equation that we wrestle with. And so we have a position as church leadership team where we stand right now. But it would be naive to think that that's going to be now and forevermore a world without end. And my guess is that this is going to continue to evolve and continue to change. And I can tell you as leaders, we desperately plead with you to pray for us because we're not real smart. Well, there's some among us, but some of us just aren't real smart. And we don't always know the mind of Christ and we want so desperately to know the mind of Christ and to make wise decisions. So we'll be wrestling with Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and that uh, tension between that and Hebrews 10 in the coming days. And I hope that you will read those passages as well for yourself because those things have to do with your choices individually as well. All right, the rest of our time when we're getting toward the end here, I want to again talk not primarily as a Bible teacher, but as a pastor. And I want to probe a bit. I hope the things we said at the outset were encouraging, but I want to do a little pastoral probing. I want, to, I want us to think about the fight behind the fights. And the fights, plural, what I'm talking about are the things that we see on social media, on other media platforms, in our own conversations with people who don't think like we do. The fight behind our fights. And I have a couple of questions for you. One, are you loving Jesus more these days? 
Are you loving Jesus more these days? And I have two sub-questions under that. Are you submitting to those in authority? Are you? To be honest, some of what I read on social media by Christians and some of what I hear from Christians directly, it's, it's, it's almost a the heck with you. I'm an American. I have rights. I'll do what I want. And by the way, I have read the Pennsylvania State Constitution, and Governor Wolf has the right to do what he's doing. The only way it can change by the General Assembly is if they have a veto-proof majority to overturn his emergency decree. Are you submitting to those in, in authority? To the degree that it does not conflict with your Christian convictions, are you submitting to those that God has placed over you in authority? Number two, are you loving those who disagree with you? Are you loving those who disagree with you? You know, our, the doctrine we really believe is not the doctrine that we can write out in a doctrinal statement, say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I believe this, I believe that, I believe. No, our doctrine is, what, is how we live when push comes to shove. Our doctrine is how we live when push comes to shove. Are you loving those who, seem, who disagree with you? <clears throat> As I say, I, I think the order from Harrisburg seems clear, but for viable reasons, I, it's not that way for other people. If you think everybody should wear a mask when you come in here and you, you look at other people that aren't, you get upset with that, first of all, you don't know their reasons for not wearing a mask. There might be health reasons. There might be mental health reasons. And vice versa, same way. Um, ma masks are a disputable matter, Romans 14. Let's treat it as such. Let me just read those verses for a minute. Romans 14, um, verse, beginning verse 12. Romans 14 and 15, it'd be great to read, just to sit down and read and say, okay, these are things in the early church that Christians disagreed about, and this is how we are, they were supposed to treat each other. Well, we've got some things we disagree about now. Uh, verse 12 that doesn't sound right. That's because I'm in 1 Corinthians. Romans 14, verse 12. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. Let's stop condemning each other. You know, this, th these conversations, if you love me, you'll wear a mask, is not helpful. It's just not helpful. You wear a mask if you are concerned about the virus spreading uh, everywhere, but don't speak that way about other people who don't know what they believe, think, or understand. And it might be wrong, but they're trying to obey their conscience and their God. And the flip side, stop being a sheep, stop wearing masks. Not helpful. We need, to, we need to honor and respect each other when we have disagreements on things like this. And that gets me to my last question. And this is the fight I'm talking about behind the fights. Are you spotting Satan's work in your own life in these days? Are you just spotting what you think is Satan's work in somebody else's life? Have you trained yourself, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 11, we are not unaware of Satan's schemes. Remember that verse? We are not unaware of Satan's schemes. Or are you? Or am I? Do, am I myopic that I only see what Satan's doing in your life and I fail to see what he's doing in mine? We are not unaware of Satan's schemes. Every chance I have gotten in the last four months, private conversations with the elders, with staff, I tell them, Satan is having a field day in the church. 
I know families that are dividing over this. I know churches that are dividing over this. There's a fight going on behind our fights. And you and I need to get on our knees before the Lord and wage holy war against the enemy of our souls who seeks to steal, steal, kill, and destroy the church. Don't be complicit. Don't be part of it. Be part of the solution. If part of what's going on these days is that God is refining the church, what's it going to look like when this is over? What's the church going to, if, if at least part of what God is up to during these days is him purifying and refining the church, then what's the church going to look like when this is over? Fool's gold or 24 karat gold? Is the church going to be in such disarray that it cannot keep its own house in order? It cannot keep the bonds of faith intact and, and, and healthy? Or is it going to have been so purified and so refined and so solidified that it is poised to make an impact in the world like it never has before? Fool's gold or 24 karat gold. Let's pray. And we beg you, Lord, to do the kind of work of your grace and mercy in us that we are both individually and corporately becoming purer and purer and purer, dispensing with more and more and more of the stuff that has so easily beset us over the years, that we'd look back on these months and maybe even years as a season in which you did more work than we could have ever imagined that you would have been equipping us to do, be more impactful and effective than we ever could have been had we not gone through this. And that we would be men and women and boys and girls who embrace the word of God because we desperately need to hear the voice of God. Who then get on our knees and cry out to the, to the king for the work that needs to be done in the world and yes, in our church and in our lives. So that when Jesus comes back, we might shine like pure, pure gold. In his name we pray, amen.